book of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconoah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father, father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Iliad, and Iliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, fourteen generations. This is the word of the Lord. Somehow Betsy always gets stuck with the genealogies. Uh, she actually wasn't supposed to be the scripture reader this week. I think the original reader saw what they had in store and conveniently decided to be with family for a little longer this weekend. Uh, great job. Thank you for that. Um, well, uh, it's good to be with you guys again. My name is Steve. For those of you who don't know me, a warm welcome to you, uh, regardless of where you're at in your spiritual background. And if you are new, uh, you've come in at a good time because we are starting Advent this afternoon. So if you follow the liturgical calendar, this is New Year's Day, as it were, on the church calendar. So this is the first day of the new year. And for Advent, which means arrival, as we reflect on Jesus' coming into the world, we are looking at Matthew's account of the birth narrative of Jesus. And you'll notice that Matthew starts here with this dry-looking list of names, a genealogy. Okay, he doesn't start with shepherds watching their flocks by night. He doesn't start with wise men bringing gifts to baby Jesus. He doesn't start with angels right, bursting into song in the heavens. He starts with a genealogy. And I think what Matthew's doing here is he's pushing against our penchant for turning the birth narrative into a kind of spiritualized chestnuts roasting over an open fire, where we reduce the birth of Jesus to, Jesus is basically just a more powerful Santa Claus, okay, who's come to give us hot cocoa and fuzzy, comfy socks for Christmas. Um, but no, what we see here in this genealogy is Jesus is both not only more comforting than chestnuts roasting over an open fire, I love that song, by the way, and fuzzy, comfy socks, which I find fun, 
Um, but he's also, he, he's more confrontational as well than those things. And so here's what we see in this list of names. It looks, maybe you're all's eyes glazed over as Betsy was reading it, but this would have felt like a lightning bolt to Matthew's original hearers. And in this genealogy, we see these two things about Jesus. We see he's the high king, and he's the humble king. We just sung a song about this earlier in our liturgy, right? So Jesus is the high king, and he's the humble king. This is the, the main idea we see in this genealogy. Okay, so first number one, Jesus is the high king. Starting in verse one, where we're going to be for a while. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So these first few words in the, in the original language are biblos geneseos. Okay, biblos geneseos, biblos is where we get the word book, right? And geneseos where we get the word genealogy, right? That's how it's translated here. However, more often geneseos was translated genesis, right? So the book of the genesis of Jesus Christ. And so if you're a first century Jew learning about Jesus, and that's who all the earliest followers of Jesus were, they were Jewish peers, right, as they're hearing about him. When you hear, say you're in a house and you're hearing Matthew's gospel read, your attention would be grabbed immediately because this word geneseos is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was widely used throughout the day, to describe Genesis, right, the first book in the Hebrew scriptures. And so hearing this, you'd experience what we today might, may call source material enthusiasm. Okay, so source material enthusiasm, and here I'm drawing from a pastor named Josh Porter who's helpful explain this, but source material, you've, you've all experienced it. It's when you go to a movie with someone who's a big fan of the material from which that movie is drawing from, right? So a Marvel film with someone who's read the comics, Right? Or, a, or you're going to see Harry Potter with someone who's read the series seven times and wore a wizard robe to opening night of the movie. Right? And what happens is when you go to a film, either you've had this happen to you or you are this person, when you go, they either they point this out to you, that they have an intimate familiarity with the source material in a way that you don't. So it may be in a complaining way where they say something to the effect of, well, actually, you know, in the book it didn't happen this way. Or it may be in a more ecstatic way where they get really excited about something because the movie's showing something that they would have a greater appreciation for if they read the original material. So this, this happened to me this past year when I saw the latest Spider-Man movie with John. We went together and partway through the film, the guy on my left, it wasn't John, although I would totally out him if it was him. Okay, the guy on my left, there's a scene in the film where a, a character shows up, and I kid you not, he stands up and screams an expletive at the top of his lungs because he is, wow, he is so excited. I think that's fine, uh, right? Because he is so excited what's going on, and clearly my life was empty because I wasn't aware of the source material that he was familiar with when it comes to Spider-Man. Thank you, Alyssa. So back to first century Jew reading or hearing this gospel read, right? They hear Biblos Geneseos or the book of Genesis. And how one scholar said you can translate this is the book of the new Genesis of Jesus Christ. And so what you would be hearing here is, oh my goodness, this is not just a story about a good teacher who was born. But just like Genesis was a creation narrative, this is a new creation narrative, 
where the foundational contours of reality are now shifting because of the birth of Jesus, where God is somehow undoing all the pain that's been wrought by human rebellion, and Jesus' birth is the pivotal point in that. Okay, this is a story that reaches far back from before the beginning of the universe, and it extends far into the, the reaches of time, far past our, our lives. And what's going on here is it's as if, you know, if you've read the Narnia series or watched the movies, it's as if it's, our world is Narnia. It's been locked under the curse of winter, and we're now seeing its first spring, right, as Aslan comes into the world, right? As Jesus comes into the world, there's a new creation happening. So this is massive. And then he goes on and he expounds on this by just this simple sentence that there's a lot packed in here, right? So the book of the new Genesis, new creation of the world brought by Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Jesus Christ. Christ isn't the last name of Jesus. Okay, Jesus was just an ordinary human name, Jesus. But then Christ was a title. Okay, it was the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah, And the Messiah is a predominant figure all throughout the Hebrew scriptures who's a kingly figure who's foretold foretold over and over again to undo all inequality and to usher in peace. And Matthew unabashedly is saying, Jesus is that Messiah that the Hebrew scriptures have been telling us about from A to Z. And then he continues, the son of David. Okay, so son here meaning someone in David's family line. And David was Israel's greatest king, right? He united the kingdoms. And in 2 Samuel 7, God gives a promise to David in verses 12 through 13, where he tells David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so when Matthew says Jesus is the son of David, what he's saying is Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise about a thousand years ago, given to David that in your line, I will bring someone who will establish the greatest kingdom the world has ever seen, a kingdom that will extend into eternity. And it's this theme that Jesus is the true son of David, right? The king with the greatest kingdom above all over kingdoms. This is the theme of Matthew's gospel as a whole. Like, you can sum up Matthew by Jesus brings us into a better kingdom. And you know this is Matthew's emphasis in his gospel, one, just because of how he curates the gospel, but also, sticking with our passage today, this is how Matthew organizes the genealogy to emphasize uh, Jesus as the Davidic king. Okay, and let's go to verse 17. So he writes, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generation. So these are three groups of 14 names, and this is a little bit nerdy, I realize, but we have a pretty nerdy church, so I'm I'm hoping you guys appreciate this, okay, everything that that goes into this. And perceptive readers will note that uh, Matthew actually skipped names in these genealogies. Like, if you add up the years, you can't say from Abraham to David the king was only 14 generations. It was way more than that. Matthew omitted names in this genealogy, and this was actually a perfectly valid way of doing history, right? You omit and emphasize certain details. I mean, not too much unlike we do today, right? But to communicate a certain point in your narrative. And what Matthew's doing by emphasizing 14 times 3 is that Jesus is the true Davidic king. How so? Well, 
continuing in our nerdy discourse. So there is a uh, Hebrew device called a gematria, where there weren't actually numbers in the Hebrew language, but the consonants primarily of the Hebrew language were assigned a number. And if you take the consonants of, of David's name, you have D or Dalet, which equals four, V or Vav, which is six, and then Dalet, which is four, which totals what? Fourteen. Yes, fourteen. Pretty cool, huh? And then on top of that, you see David is actually the 14th name in the genealogy. Okay, so you, so you can't miss it if you're original listener. Okay, Jesus is the king of kings who's come, the fulfillment of God's promise to David. And then he finishes the son of Abraham, referring to God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 that through Abraham's line, the Jews, right, would come blessing not just to Israel, but to all the nations of the earth. So your first century Jew, hearing this, this read, and the message can't be clear. Okay, this isn't just a history, although it is. It's not just a biography, although it is. Okay, this is the story of the long-foretold king, okay, God himself, who's come to remake the world and renew all things. And because of this, Jesus is the high king, and we owe him our allegiance. So there's this scene in The Fellowship of the Ring, the movie. I don't think this happens in the book, source material, enthusiast. Okay, where there's the Council of Elrond, and it's a meeting of all Middle-earth's greatest leaders. And Aragorn, he's there, and he is the king, right? He's, he's the, the king of Middle-earth, but no one knows it yet. And he, he looks like just a very unassuming ragtag ranger. And he pipe, pipes up in this meeting of great leaders, and Boromir, like one of, like the, a very proud leader there, he, he looks at Aragorn and he goes, and what would a mere ranger know of these great things we're discussing? And Legolas, the elf, he stands up and he says, this is no mere ranger. Okay, this is Aragorn, son of Arathorn, and you owe him your allegiance. And what Matthew's saying here is, Jesus is no mere religious figure, in align with other religious figures. He is Jesus the Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, and you owe him your allegiance. And because Jesus is the high king, on the one hand, this is incredibly comforting because if he's not, if his kingdom is not the kingdom that's going to, that's not, that hasn't already begun and is going into, to endure and be consummated in the new earth, this means that we will never come to a point right, where we stop seeing mass shootings in the news. Okay, where domestic violence stops being the tragedy and pervasiveness that it is. Right, where you stop feeling whether it's that inner anxiety or having panic attacks or those deep pangs and longings that go unfulfilled. These things will not be solved by human solutions. Okay, Jesus uses us to enact real change in, the, in these regards, but it will never be fully healed unless he's the king when he renews the earth. Earth, So it's comforting, but also it's challenging because if Jesus is the high king, this means we can't just look at Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, can you come just sprinkle some fairy dust and inner peace onto my already mapped out agenda for life? 
Okay, we can't say, hey, Jesus, I'm all about the uh, comfort and good vibes thing. And so if you're, if you're into that, you can come into my story. But if not, you can just stay on the outskirts. If Jesus is the high king, and he is, and if his first call is deny yourself, not express yourself, right, and live for yourself, and that is his first call, then what this means is life in his kingdom means we don't live a life oriented toward self, but a life oriented toward the good of neighbor, to the glory of God. And we map our desires onto the desires of Jesus. And this is what Jesus calls the good life in his kingdom. Okay, because we owe him our allegiance as the high king. And so I, just, I say this because I think we need to be really careful because all of us are affected by the air that we breathe. Okay, okay, and right now, there's a, just a dominant stream of thought, and we all believe it to a degree, that really, at the end of the day, I am my own authority. Okay, where no one else should tell me what I need to do. Okay, especially if it's, especially if it's a god, okay, or some kind of religious tradition. Okay, but Jesus is—he's not just the high king, but he's the good king. Okay, and so we're brought into healing when we submit to him as Lord. Number one, Jesus is the high king. Number two, though, Jesus is not just the high king; he is the humble king which makes following him, even when we do have to lay down our desires and our agenda for him, it makes it a no-brainer once we see this second component of Jesus, that he is the humble king. So to make sense of this genealogy, you have to appreciate what this would mean to ancient readers. Because in every society, the way you get ahead in life is you have credentials. And the way that we do that today is largely through what? Through the resume. It written or spoken. So on your resume, you talk about, you know, you, you highlight the best school that you went to and your accolades, if any, while you were there. You highlight the best jobs that you've held, what you've accomplished, right? The, the who's who that you're connected with. And so largely, we build our credentials today through individual accomplishments because that makes sense. We live in a very atomized, individualistic society. But with ancient cultures who weren't individualistic, it didn't matter what you accomplished. If you write down, like, I graduated summa cum laude from this university, and they'd be like, who cares? What'd your, what'd your grandparent, what'd your granddad do? What'd your father do? Hey, because the way they built credentials in their culture was who was in their family tree. That's what mattered. Okay, who were you related to? And so keeping this in mind, look who Jesus decides to emphasize who he's related to, to put in his family tree, and therefore lend himself credentials. Okay, so first, he highlights women. And this wasn't unheard of in ancient culture, but it was rare because, generally speaking, men held the power. And so just like today, you know, if you got fired from a job, you're probably not going to put that on your resume. Okay, you upplay the things that went well and you, you downplay the things that haven't gone well. Same thing with genealogies. You, you would highlight the people of power in your family tree, which were mainly the men. Okay, and so rarely would women be on there. But Jesus puts women, it's, this is very subversive, he puts women in his family tree, but not just any women. He doesn't put the heavy hitters of Hebrew history like Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel. Who does he put on here? Uh, first we see Tamar in verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law, Judah, who's also in this genealogy. And Tamar was widowed while she was in Judah's family, and when she was widowed, which means she, was, she became very vulnerable, 
Judah, her father-in-law, who had the power, essentially acted as if she didn't exist and just put her aside into the dustbin, as it were. And then later on, he, had a, he satisfied his passions through her. He had a child through her. This is, why, this is why it says the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Matthew wants us to see this. And so Tamar is who you could say is the forgotten. Okay, so Jesus includes the forgotten in his family tree. Then verse 5, right, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Who's Rahab? Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute who helped the Israelites when they came into Jericho. And Rahab was probably a prostitute for the reason that most women were, and still today, are prostitutes, right? She, she, was very, she was extremely vulnerable because she didn't have a husband or a family, and so basically the only way she could get by was through prostitution. And so while it doesn't justify her actions, um, it does remind us that she was exploited for her body. And then when she was brought into the Israelite community, as many religious communities are, uh, she probably wasn't treated very well because of her former profession. And so Rahab, you could say, would have been known as, oh, she's the sinner, right? She's the sinful one. And then you have Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Okay, Ruth was a Moabite, not a Jew. Moabites were sworn enemies of Israel. They weren't even allowed into the temple or church for worship. So Ruth is the outsider. And then Bathsheba, where is she? I don't see her name. End of verse 6, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So it almost this looks like, it looks initially like it's a slight against Bathsheba, right? Why is Matthew not even saying her name? It's actually a slight against David. Because the author wants us to remember that Bathsheba was married to a good man, Uriah, a man who saved David's life. And then David saw Bathsheba bathing on the rooftop. He wanted her. He summoned her to his bedroom. And being summoned by the king, did she really have a choice to say no? Okay, a lot of people teach this story as adultery. Adultery requires two consenting parties. That's probably not what this was. Okay, so she's exploited, and then David murders his good friend and her husband to cover his tracks, and then he marries her. And so you have Bathsheba, who's the exploited one. And yet, these are the people Jesus puts on his resume. Why? Have you ever felt forgotten on the outside, sinful, exploited? By Jesus putting them and therefore you in his family tree, what he's saying is, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of them. Okay, I want their names to be highlighted when people read about me. Are you beginning to see the upside-down nature by which how Jesus works and therefore how his kingdom works because he's the humble king? And things stay crazy. Okay, David's on there, right? So notice, same, same verse, verse 6b, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So David, if you're in the first century and you could have chosen to have any resume just like attached to your name, you would have wanted David on there. Because he was Israel's greatest monarch. I mean, he wrote psalms for crying out loud. He was very religious. He didn't set up temples to false gods like many of the other Israelite kings did. Okay, so you'd want him on there. But by Matthew saying, remember what David did to Bathsheba and Uriah? 
And by putting, so by putting David right next to Bathsheba, it's just, this is so scandalous because he's saying, not only does Jesus elevate the second-class citizens to the place of honor, but he demotes those who think they're so important, right, and others who think they're so important because both are in need of the grace of God. And perhaps most scandalous or most offensive, okay, it's not just those who've been wronged that can receive God's grace and be in Jesus' kingdom, but those who are the wrongdoers. Okay, David was a wrongdoer. Many of the other names on this list, leaders, kings, were abusers, exploiters, were incredibly corrupt. Some never repented and they'll face judgment. Others repented and they'll receive the grace of God. This is a scandalous genealogy. And so the question you have to ask is, why does Jesus' kingdom work this way? And it's, it's because it's a kingdom that works by grace. And how and why does it work by grace? Well, we see it later in Matthew's gospel. And that's because the cross was the most scandalous thing, okay, the most scandalous way to die in Roman society. If you were a Roman citizen, it didn't matter how heinous your crime was. You, didn't, you wouldn't be crucified on a cross because the cross was for those who were non-persons. Okay? And if you're a Roman citizen, you're considered a person. No, a cross was for non-persons. It was for the forgotten. It was for the exploited. It was for those who were on outside. It was for those who, the kinds of people who were on this list. Okay? No one would voluntarily choose to go to a cross, not just because it was excruciating, but because it was so disgraceful. And yet Jesus voluntarily chooses to go to a cross as the means of his death. Why? To take on all of these identities, to take on all of your stuff and exchange your resume for his resume. To take your family tree, I know some of you have really painful family trees, and to give you his family tree where you're now a daughter of the Most High, a son of the Most High. And then he rises from the dead to ensure these things are true and offers you life in his family by grace. doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what has happened to you because he's the humble king. Okay, and so what are some, some further applications we can draw from this, Jesus being the humble king? And... First, as we look at Jesus being the humble king and, more broadly speaking, this genealogy, number one, this should give you tremendous hope in dark times. God's promise to David to bring a king through his line happened around 1000 B.C. It was a long time before Jesus was born, and the promise to Abraham was millennia before that. So if you're living in... 500 B.C., 700 B.C., 200 B.C. You're just like, hmm, pretty sure God's checked out. Right, but yet, God kept his promises. He was faithful. He is faithful. And look at all the stuff that happens here. I mean, there's incest. There's exploitation. There's corrupt leaders. Okay, I mean, one of the reasons why many people are leaving God, leaving the church today, is because of all the hypocrisy and corruption amongst church leaders. But yet by God holding fast to his church and his promises and to you and me, what he's saying here is no matter what your story looks like, 
or what it feels like today. If you take your story and embed it into the story of the one who was voluntarily forgotten, exploited, put on the outside, and treated as sinful. Your story becomes new, which means Jesus will take all the tangled mess of your life, be it messes that you've created or messes that other people have created in your life, and he will undo those knots of pain and brokenness and then take those dark cords and make them colorful and beautiful as he puts them into his story. Where you become made new today, and then you will know a day where there are no more tears and there are no more unmet unmet longings in his kingdom. Okay, this is something that only God can do. And God only does through Jesus. Through no other name can you find this, and through no other name does does God do this. Okay, so you can always have hope in the darkness, no matter how dark things may feel. And then number two, I love this. To be in families, in Jesus' family tree, it means you're given a new name. So by Jesus putting Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba in his family tree, what happens? Rahab is no longer the prostitute. She's the mother of Jesus. Bathsheba is no longer the exploited. She's the mother of Jesus. Ruth is no longer the outsider. She's the mother of Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 2, you're told that Jesus is not ashamed to be called your brother, okay, which, you, which means you become the sister of Jesus, the brother of Jesus. And I think about when I entered into my freshman year of high school. I was a dweeby kid who wasn't that cool. Some of you are like, you're still not that cool. <laughs> and I had an older brother, Mike, who he graduated uh, the year before me. So he was a college freshman when I entered the same high school he went to as a, as a high school freshman. But there, he was like one of the most popular kids in, in his class. And so there were a lot of seniors and juniors and teachers who knew me as Mike's brother. And more than that, I mean, Mike was proud of me. He told people about me. He loved to take me out to his parties. He'd had me alongside him. If his friends were over, he'd invite me downstairs to hang out with them because he wasn't, he wasn't ashamed to be called my brother. And so when I walked around the halls of the high school, if I walked around with the identity of I'm Steve, I felt unsure of myself. I felt scared. I felt I didn't have any self-confidence. But if I walked around as I'm Mike's brother, it didn't matter what the peasants thought, right? I'm Mike's younger brother. And so it is for you. You are Jesus's brother. You're Jesus's sister. And maybe for those of you who struggle with, with self-hate and self-loathing, need to know that Jesus is not ashamed to be called your brother. For those of you who are so sensitive to criticism, Right? Your, your spouse, a coworker, can no longer criticize you, real or perceived, because you're going to take it so personally. You're forgetting that your fundamental identity is your Jesus' sister, your Jesus' brother. He gives you a new name, and he gives you the only name that endures. And so for those of you who he- are here and are exploring the faith, or you're considering walking away from Jesus, just with as much love as, as I can 
muster, if you live for yourself, your name will vanish. Okay, the only reason why we have these names are because Jesus brought them into his story. And these names will endure forever. And every name, well, the names here who are in Jesus, right, will be with Jesus at the dinner table, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so it can be for you when you unite yourself to him by faith. He is the high and humble king. Let's pray.